I'm Evgeny Lebedev, and welcome to my podcast, Brave New World. I was born in the Soviet Union in 1980, where my beloved grandfather was a pioneering biologist and an early sustainability advocate. From a very young age, through sharing his work with me, he instilled in me a great desire to learn, one which I've been lucky to cultivate through the brilliant minds I have met over my years. We live in a world in need of healing, and throughout the making of this podcast, I've had the fortune of meeting some of the people helping us find new ways to rise to this challenge. So please join me on this journey as we venture together into the brave new world. I'm honored to welcome Dr. Gabo Mate, a renowned physician, best-selling author, recognized globally for his groundbreaking work in the fields of addiction and mental health. His insights have profoundly impacted our understanding of human experience. Born in 1944 in Budapest, Dr. Mate's early years coincided with a turbulent period in European history. His family, like many others, experienced the hardships and the uncertainties brought about by the Second World War and had to flee their homeland to escape the atrocities of the Holocaust. This contributed to Mate's deep understanding of trauma and resilience, on which he will be speaking about today, along with exploring the connections between mind and body and discussing his book, Myth of Normal, which tackles what he describes as a toxic culture in our society. Dr. Gabo Mate, it's a pleasure to welcome you on the Brave New World podcast. I wanted to start with asking you about self-limiting beliefs. I noticed as I was coming downstairs to start this recording that, um, as I often do when it comes to anything slightly more out of my comfort zone, I start getting pangs of nervousness. I get mm. uh, increased heartbeat. I get wetter palms, faster breath. A lot of people in different ways have this. And I think it'd be really interesting for our listeners to uh, hear your opinion about why this happens and, and how they can work on themselves, how it can be improved. Sure. Well, first of all, I can relate. I, I gave a talk last night at the Troxy to 2,100 people. And um, I really beat myself up afterwards about... Maybe I didn't do well enough. I didn't give them enough. I was judging myself, you know, and uh, it's pretty common for me that there's sort of an undermining, self-undermining questioning that happens. And um, there's something that they call the evaluation stress, which is when you're afraid of being evaluated, then your physiology gets stressed. And the things that you're describing, the sweaty palms and all that, those are signs of stress. Mm -hmm. Now, where does it come from? No baby is born with evaluation stress. No baby is born with self-limiting beliefs or with any beliefs whatsoever. So if we develop these self-limiting beliefs that we're not good enough, that we'd be judged as not good enough, that we have to justify our existence, that if we express ourselves truly, we'll be rejected or disliked. These are conditioned responses. And in my view, the responses to early childhood experience. I'm sure a lot of people out there can relate to this. What have you done personally, or if you've done anything to accept that and be able to be a better version of yourself within the self-limiting beliefs that you've acquired as, as a child? 
Well, look, as I describe in my book, The Myth of Normal, my introduction to the world was as a Jewish infant living under Nazi occupation. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was two months of age, the, the Wehrmacht, the German army, occupied Budapest, where I lived. And uh, my mother, as you can imagine, as a Jewish mom, lived under terror, uh, daily fear of survival, discrimination, oppression, and so on. Children take their parents' emotional states personally. So children are narcissistic, not in the sense that pathologically narcissistic or egotistically selfish, but in the sense that they believe is all about them. Mm-hmm. So that when my mother is unhappy, I develop the belief that it's my fault and I'm a faulty person. So my first limiting belief really is that I don't even have the right to exist because I'm making my life, my mother's life so difficult. And uh, I actually, in the book, The Myth of Normal, I describe a, an experience I had with a, a healing experience with a therapist using uh, mushrooms. In this session, I experienced myself both as being present as an adult and I know that I'm in this session, I'm not hallucinating or anything, but I'm also experiencing myself as a one-year-old. And the therapist is my mother, and I start crying, and I say, I'm so sorry I made your life so difficult. So the very first limiting belief I I believed, that it was all my fault, that I'm not worthy. How do I overcome that? So there's an adult, before I overcome it, before I get over it, I act it out. And how do I act it out? If I'm not good enough and if uh, I have to justify my existence, which is the limiting belief that no human being should have to justify their existence. Infants exist because they exist. If they get the message that somehow their existence is a burden or, or that they're not good enough the way they are, then we develop coping mechanisms to justify my, our existence. In my case, I become a workaholic doctor. So, yes. I'm not just working because I genuinely want to serve humanity, which I do. And I'm not just working because I genuinely want a decent standard of living, which I do. But I'm also working on an unconscious level to justify my very being, which means that I get addicted to validation and being important to other people because that temporarily offers me a sense of value. The result is... I ignore my own health, my own needs, and my family. So I think, how do you overcome it? Or how do you get over that deficient sense of self? The first thing is to recognize that you have it. And mm-hmm. not to confuse it with who you really are. But I, I wanted to um, ask you about your your book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing uh, in the Toxic Culture. What is it about our culture that makes it toxic? So the analogy that I use is if you were um, a laboratory uh, scientist growing organisms in a Petri dish, and you call that a culture, you'd call that culture in these organisms, laboratory culture, that's what we call it. <clears throat> and if these organisms were thriving and, and proliferating, you would say this is a healthy culture. But if large numbers were dying off, you'd say it's a toxic culture. Now, if you look at the globalized world, particularly Britain, uh, Canada, where I live, or the United States, you find increasing number of uh, people mentally ill, more and more people being treated for depression and for anxiety in huge numbers, medications. Chronic illnesses are on the rise in the United States. 
70% of adults are at least on one medication. 50% are on two medications. These are adults. Millions of kids are being diagnosed with attention deficit disorders, oppositionality, conduct disorders, depression, anxiety. Self-cutting is rising amongst children. Childhood suicide, particularly in the U.S., is rising. If this is a laboratory culture, you have to call it a toxic culture. But it, what is it about our culture that makes it toxic? I would see we developed much faster than we're able to evolve much, much faster. You've given the, um, I guess, the, the symptoms. What, what are the causes? All right. To go back to our laboratory analogy, if that culture in which we're brewing our microorganisms met their needs for nutrition and healthy living, it's a benign culture. So you have to say, what is it about our culture that denies people their needs? So human beings have certain needs, and uh, these needs are not arbitrarily defined. They're not new age. They're dictated by evolution. If you look at how human beings evolved, I mean, civilization with cities and private property and and divisions of classes and and, um, accumulation of wealth, it's a fairly new development in human existence. When I say new, our own species which is not the only human species ever to have lived. There were humans long before us. But our own species has been around, say, 200,000 years. Well, civilization, if our existence as a species could be circumscribed on the face of a clock, then our civilization is about five minutes old. That means until five minutes ago, we lived in small band hunter-gatherer groups out there in nature. Yes. Where children were always around adults where there was a whole, not just isolated mom and dad trying to raise a child in, a, in difficult, stress circumstances, but the whole clan were parents to all children, children with a deep sense of safety and belonging. And there was a communality where people actually looked out for each other. We could not have survived otherwise. There's no other way that our species could have survived. And in common with other mammals, we developed certain needs and expectations. So an expectation of the child Human infants are a response to love and acceptance and unconditional holding. That's just the need of the child. And uh, all mammals hold their children. Rats lick their infants as soon as they're born. And the way the mother rat licks the infant has an impact on how the baby rat's brain develops and how they behave as an adult. One of the interesting thing that happened when I interviewed Prince Harry and uh, is that he was telling me, or I, was, I read his book, and in that family, there was no touching of children, there was no holding. When um, Princess Diana died, the then Prince Charles, the current King Charles, came into his youngest son's room, Harry's room, and said, there's been a terrible accident, your mother didn't make it, but it'll be okay. Touched him on the knee and left the room. This is how this child was told that his mother had died. Now, that was only replaying Charles's own childhood. When he was five years old, uh, his mother, the late Queen Elizabeth, goes on a royal tour for four or five months, comes back, and greets Charles by shaking his hand. So I said, in that family, there was no touching, there was no holding. And I said, even animals touch their children, which they do, because the infant needs to be held and, and, and touched. Is that a culture of repression? 
It's cultural repression, but it's also traumatizing for the child. And now, what's interesting is that the London Sunday Times then reviewed that interview, and they said that I said that the royal family treated like kids like animals. I said the opposite. I said I wish they treated them like animals, because animals actually, mammals actually hold and touch their kid. Do you think Britain is the most repressed culture on, on the planet, or the English? The, the Celts are not, the Irish and the Scottish, but the English, are they? It's one of the more repressed ones. I, I was reading an interview with um, uh, the spy novelist John Le Carré. Yes. And uh, there was a fascinating interview with John Le Carré and a, and a, and a British author and writer called uh, Ben McIntyre. So these two characters are talking. And McIntyre says, there's no deceiver more effective than a public school educated Brit. He could be standing next to you in the bus queue, having a force 12 nervous breakdown, and you'd never be any the wiser. <laughs> so John Carey says, when you become that frozen child, but you outwardly functioning charming chap, there's a lot of wasteland inside you that's waiting to be cultivated. Now, th that speaks to highly repressed culture and the culture of the British public schools, which is to say, in North American language, the British private schools, was of repression and severe traumatization of, of children. And then these repressed kids with the stiff upper lip will go out there and impose their colonial cruelty upon Aboriginal people around the world without any, any um, hint of conscience. That took a lot of repression. Mm. I think there's a lot of belief that if you start... And this was this was also a conversation happening around your Prince Harry interview. And there's a lot of belief in Britain, and I think beyond Britain, that if you start exploring your your emotional side, if you start exploring your subconsciousness, if even if you just you know in certain cases if you just even speak to psychoanalyst, that yeah. it it somehow weakens you, it somehow makes you weak weaker person. I believe the opposite. Actually, it makes you a stronger person because it doesn't change you. If you can recognize what it is that you've gone through in life and what you've, what made you what you are, it, it actually makes you a stronger person. But going back to toxic culture, beyond the way that we raise our children, and is this purely a Western phenomenon? It's more first world than anything else. Uh, um, I mean, another need of children is to be able to experience and and express all their emotions, mm -hmm. including their anger, their grief, their joy, their fear. And in us, in Western societies, tend to be very utilitarian. Certain emotions are acceptable; certain are not. Certain expressions of a childhood's true nature are forbidden, that distorts the development of children. Now, I've, I just read a book called 1491, which is, um, of course, the year before Columbus arrived on the shores of um, what is now called North America. And uh, so it described indigenous societies um, prior to the arrival of the Europeans. In, in what is the... Um, northern eastern United States now, the pilgrims, the British pilgrims, 
were appalled at how the indigenous people were raising their children because these children were totally free to run around and do whatever they wanted. And the natives did not hit their kids. And to the Christians, this meant spare the rod, spoil the child. In other words, the closer indigenous people are to nature and to their hunter-gatherer origins, the better children are treated with more respect, with more freedom, with more love, with more touch, with more holding. And this has been described internationally, from Australia to the Inuit, so that indigenous people living close to the land tend to parent far more naturally, far less coercively, and far more lovingly than the the so-called civilized societies. But beyond the way we live in in familial circumstances and the way we we raise our children what what else do you think is toxic um, yes because we we've, we've developed so much i mean for me for example i i know you <clears throat> you 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 said to me when we first connected that you were on a digital sabbatical and you highly recommended it and i yeah. you know for me tech is uh evil i can also hugely appreciate and value the benefits it brings to life. But for me personally, and I don't know about yourself, when I open my telephone, my neurological state goes into total overdrive because there's such an incredible assault on your neural pathways from what's coming from this device. So that's one thing for me that I've noticed for sure that is an enormous cause of stress. And I'm interested why it's not really talked about very much, this particular thing. The um... I agree with you. Uh, the books that I've written, particularly this last one, it took me 10 years of research, and it would have been extraordinarily difficult without the Internet. At the same time, and my work has become so much better known because of the Internet and YouTube and so on. Having said that, if I could wave a magic wand and disappear the internet, I would do it uh, because I think it's done far more harm than good. And particularly in the realm of human relationships, of human isolation and the development of children. So, I mean, there's been studies now that shows that children's brain waves get distorted in the impact of too much screen watching and that the areas of the brain that have to do with intuition and emotional intelligence and cognition actually suffer because of screen exposure. And yet, now we're seeing one-year-old with their cell phones and their iPads. Yes. And uh, it's hugely addictive. As you mentioned, this summer I took a two-week uh, sabbatical from um, all things digital, cell phones, emails, internet, anything. What was interesting to notice is the inner drive to keep reaching for that technology. Now, my cell phone was on airplane mode, so I couldn't receive messages. But even then, I'd pick it up quite a couple of times. I just couldn't help it. I was definitely yes. <laughs> reaching for it, you know, even though there was nothing to see because it was on, on, on airplane mode, you know. And in those two weeks, I did take time to to read more, to meditate more, to do some yoga. I came out of it a different person after two weeks. And uh, I really am working now to maintain that practice. So when I wake up in the morning now, I have to confess. The first thing I did this morning is I turned on my cell phone. But usually I don't. I'll have my mindfulness time. 
before I, I relate to that media. So there's been books on it. In The Myth of Normal, we talk about the negative impact of the digital media on human beings, particularly the in children. And one of the worst things about um, the digital media, which is one of the toxicities of our culture, only one of many, is that in the name of social contact, it actually isolates people. For all this connectivity now, there's such an epidemic of loneliness in the Western world. That's one of the toxicities of today's culture. Um, the number of people lonely goes up all the time. In Britain, at some point, they appointed a minister for loneliness. And being lonely is as much of a risk factor for illness and early death as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And yet the number of people who are lonely because of all kinds of social conditions and political um, decisions is going up all the time. And so, the, and, and the internet creates this full or false sense of belonging, but it doesn't meet your human needs for contact. But human beings are not discrete, isolated organisms. Just as our nervous systems are connected with the gut and the gut is connected with the immune system and the immune system is part and parcel of the same apparatus that runs our hormones, which is all connected with the emotional system. So we're, mm. we're creatures where the mind and body can't be separated. And since our minds are so affected by our relationships, we're what has been called biopsychosocial creatures, which is to say that our biology is determined and shaped and very much affected by our emotions and our social relationships. And if that's the case, then let's look at our social relationships. Let's look at the pressures that are put on young families to raise children under highly stressed circumstances. So those needs of children that you and I talked about, parents with the best of goodwill have great difficulty meeting because of the stresses that they're under. So what support could be given to young families to spend more time with their children? Could teachers be educated in brain development realizing that the human brain develops in interaction with the environment, which is how it develops. And the most important element influencing human brain development is actually our social and emotional relationships. Could the schools become places not just of the conveyance of information or skill, but actually of emotional development? Could teachers be trained in trauma so they understood that these kids were bullies or being bullied or have trouble paying attention. There's a um, survey recently. Teachers are noticing more and more kids who have trouble paying attention and sitting still. If those teachers were trained to realize that these are not behavior problems, but manifestations of children's anxiety and children's uh, lack of sense of safety, then we would provide more safety in our communities and in our schools. If doctors were trained in trauma, which they're not, they average, despite the fact that trauma has been implicated in all chronic illnesses from breast cancer to rheumatoid arthritis to depression to ADHD to psychosis. Their average physician does not get a single lecture on trauma, not a single lecture, which is beyond believable This, in the face of all the scientific evidence. That's why I write about so much. What if we educated our educators about the human needs and what human development requires? What if we educated doctors to understand the biopsychosocial nature of human beings. What if the legal system, I mean, there was an article yesterday 
there was a, some commission in Britain who said that one in ten prisons should be shut down because the conditions are so horrible. And if you look at who's in our jails, it's mostly traumatized people who end up behaving in ways that run them against the law. So what if there was a trauma-informed society where human needs were and 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 the healthy development of the human personality was held as the highest value. Do you see any movement in that direction? And of course, these stratas within our society being healthcare uh, or education, prison system, social care, they are yeah. very, very slow to move. You know, medical profession is very known to be conservative and very, very slow to accept any anything new. As far as the science is concerned, what I'm saying is not even vaguely controversial. A study three years ago showed that women with severe post-traumatic stress disorder have doubled the risk of ovarian cancer. So that study from Harvard University, that study, that study alone should have sent every physician trying to figure out the mind-body connection. Multiple studies. In 1870, Jean-Martin Charcot, the first neurologist to describe multiple sclerosis, said that this is a disease driven by vexation and long-term grief. Um, since then, there's been multiple studies showing a relationship, the physiological relationship between inflammation of the nervous system, which is what multiple sclerosis represents, and trauma and stress. The effect of stress and trauma on our genetic functioning on the functioning of our chromosomes, on, on, on instigating inflammation in the body, on the triggering of cancer cells, on the disabling of our immune defenses. These have all been studied, published in tens of thousands of research papers, not even controversial. The average physician never hears a word about it. So, so on the one hand, there's this huge gap between science and medical practice. It's a huge gap. That's the first point. The second point is, in terms of public awareness, there's more and more. And then there's the medical reticence to even look at these things. And there's a tremendous pushback. So that the London Spectator, um, a couple of months ago, ran an article about the cult of trauma, you know, in which they happen to name me as one of the chief uh, uh, priests of this new cult of trauma. And there's the science, there's the public awareness, then there's the official medical ignorance. When I say ignorance, I mean in both senses of the word, that they're not aware of it, but they're also ignoring it. And then and then there's a certain amount of pushback on the part of people that just don't want to enter those troubled waters. Tomorrow night I'm going to a play. It's called Dr. Semmelweis. It's mm-hmm. starring Mark Rylance, this great British actor. Yes. And, uh, Semmelweis was a Hungarian like me, and uh, he's one of the medical heroes. I grew up, my aunt used to work at the hospital where there's a statue of Dr. Semmelweis. Semmelweis, in the mid-19th century, figured out that washing your hands before delivering babies would save women's lives because women used to die of sepsis, postpartum sepsis. And, and Semmelweis noticed that when the midwives were delivering the babies, the rate of maternal sepsis was much lower. And some of us said, what's going on here? He said, well, what's going on is that the doctors would um, go to their, um, deliver their babies, having just immersed their hands in dead corpses, you know, mm. doing autopsies. And what, this is before we knew about germs. 
so they didn't wash their hands. And some of them I said, let's just wash our hands. And so he developed this hand-washing routine, which reduced the number of maternal deaths significantly. He was laughed out of the profession. He was hounded out of the profession. He ended up dying in a mental health hospital. So this play, Dr. Semmelweis, that I'm seeing tomorrow night here in London, is about him. And so I'm not making comparisons. I'm just saying that what you say about the conservatism of the medical profession has been there for a long time. Yes, of course, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I've, I can see it now and I've, I've read about it throughout history. It seems particularly prevalent in that profession, particularly now, you know, again, in the context of what the podcast I've been making and, and, and all the exciting new research out there and just also seeing the flip side of how the medical profession is reacting to it. Yeah. But that's what happens with great... Uh, innovation, it's always seen as a, a joke, but it's not. I wanted to go back to what you said regarding the spectator <clears throat> article of the cult of trauma. What, what was the... Just of it? Yes, that's the word. Um, the article was written by somebody who describes himself as an addiction specialist. Um, not necessarily a medical doctor, but an addiction professional. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that there are these studies called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Studies, the AC studies, done in the United States in the 1990s, which showed that the more adversity in childhood, the greater the risk for addiction. Now, I used to work with a highly addicted population in Vancouver, British Columbia. In all my years, in 12 years of work, in that area of Vancouver, I didn't have a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. Not a single female patient. And uh, they also tended to be of indigenous origin because of the horrific colonial oppression of indigenous mm-hmm. people in Canada. They're much more prone for addictions. Um, anyway, so this article says <clears throat> that these studies are false because if you look at the statistics, um, for example, uh, the study showed that if you had um, these uh, childhood experiences, you're much more likely to become a smoker, you know, to smoke cigarettes. Because cigarette smoking is a self-soothing is what it is. Mm -hmm. The article about the cult of trauma says that, well, only about 15% of people who are traumatized uh, become smokers. So how can we say that trauma is a big cause of smoking? And yet, if you ask... How many smokers become lung cancer patients? Only about 15% of smokers develop lung cancer, 10 to 15%. So can we argue, therefore, that smoking doesn't is a major, not a contributor to lung cancer? 95% of people with lung cancer are smokers. Mm-hmm. So even though only 15% of smokers have lung cancer, 95% of people with lung cancer are smokers. So in other words, smoking is the major contributor. It's the same with addiction. That's the first point. The second point is that there's not just drug addiction uh, and the smoking addiction. People get addicted to sex, to pornography, to gambling, to shopping, to eating, to work, to self-cutting, to bulimia, to gaming, to the Internet, to their cell phones. I could go on and on. So if you look at the total number of addicts, it's much more than just the drug addicts. We just don't like to see the similarities. A lot of criticism of trauma blame is about 
absolving people of responsibility of, of for their actions. It'd be interesting to to hear you put that in context. Yeah, well, the question of responsibility, of course, is a, is a key one. Um, <clears throat> I don't know anybody. I truly don't know anybody um, in the field that I work in that uses trauma as any kind of an excuse for anything. You know, um, it's a question of do we understand why people do be, behave the way they, they, they do or do we not want to understand? Now, actually, when I began to understand um, the sources of my behavior, I gained some agency. Now I can take responsibility. Uh, responsibility is a very abstract term. What does it mean? Sometimes when people use the word responsibility, they mean guilt. You know, that's not what I mean when I use the word responsibility. I literally mean the ability to respond, response, ability. And the more I know about myself or the sources of somebody else's behavior, the more they or I can take responsibility. Now, if you look at why people are in emotional pain, why they're isolated, why they're stressed, it's because of the trauma in their lives. So to, and once they recognize that, oh, my addiction is not a moral failure. It's not a personal weakness. It's not a, a failure of will. It's my response to trying to soothe my emotional pain. How can I learn to handle my pain in more useful ways that are not self-destructive or socially destructive? So to understand the source is to gain responsibility rather than to lose it. Would you say things like AA, NA, it is a good thing? Do they actually work? I wish there was one thing that worked for everybody, but I don't think so. Um, mm -hmm. AA has done a lot of good work. Um, it works for about probably 20, 25% of people, mm -hmm. which is not bad. Yeah. It's much better than many addiction programs. Um, the 12 steps themselves, having had my own addictive behaviors, not with drugs, but with other stuff, the 12 steps I think are wonderful in the sense of recognizing your powerlessness over this habit, uh, recognizing, uh, asking for help for some deeper part of yourself, the higher power. I don't care if you define higher power as a God, which a lot of people don't want to do, just as your conscience or your connection to nature or whatever, mm. recognizing that there's more to you than just a little egoic personality. But the moral inventory of taking stock of what you've done and how you've behaved towards other people, how you hurt them, and taking responsibility for that. I mean, who wouldn't benefit from doing that? All of us would, addicted or not. So I think the 12 steps are great. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also companionship. People were hurt in relationship and they heal in relationship. And in a group, there tends to be that kind of support and supportive warm energy that's higher than the energy of any one particular person. So the group tends to, if, if the groups are properly run, they lift people up. They give mm -hmm. them a kind of a healing energy. So I'm all in favor of them. Where I do critique them is they don't talk about trauma. Uh, yes. So they still see the yeah. addiction as a inherited brain disease of some kind. I don't see it as inherited. I don't see it as a disease. I see it as a normal response to trauma. And uh, as much as I favor the 12 steps and as much as I you know, support people going to getting their sponsors and going to the groups, it can be very, very helpful. I just wish they dealt more with the issue of trauma. Yeah. Do you, do you think there are uh, so some people have a higher tolerance for, for trauma than others? And, and are there some people that are beyond repair? 
I doubt very much that anything could have been done to repair uh, a Hitler or a Stalin or somebody like that, you know. Um, um, <laughs> but, um, but in principle, in my experience, uh, I'd much rather assume that the possibility of transformation is inside everybody. And given the right approach and the right conditions, they could attain it. And that's my governing principle. I've been in prisons, Evgeny, with uh, lifers who've been there for murder. And there have been mm -hmm. programs. There's a program in San Quentin called the EPP, Enneagram Prison Project. And Enneagram is a way of working with the personality. I don't know much about it, but it's transformative. And these people who go into this program hostile, they come out of it owning responsibly for what they did and full of gentility. I know that to many of your listeners, this will sound totally outlandish, but I'm not the only one to say so. Anybody with this experience will tell you this, that you meet some of the most gentle people on murderers row once they deal with the traumas that drove them and once they learn to take full responsibility for themselves, so that these people who became hardened criminals, they were hardened because of terrible stuff that happened to them. That doesn't excuse what they did, but it shows that there's a potential for rehabilitation rather than just punition. And surely our goal should be not just to punish people, certainly to protect society, but also to rehabilitate any human being that can be rehabilitated. That should be our goal. I also wanted to ask you is whether does trauma produce brilliance? Mm, no. I don't think trauma produces brilliance. Brilliance is just brilliance. I think... Um, Well, most, most would you not say most brilliant people artistically or culturally are have been somewhat driven to to express themselves because of what happened to them in, in their no, childhood? No, I, I think that's a very interesting debate and it's been going on forever, I think. And uh, is suffering necessary for the creation of uh, great art? I don't see the relationship as a direct one. I see it as an indirect one. I say... Who are the great artists? Who are the great creators? Usually they're people who by temperament and genetically, not only talented, but also very highly sensitive. And it's that sensitivity which allows them to feel so much more than the average person. And they be able to pull in the different energies from the environment. And their talent allows them to shape that and, and into new forms. But it also means The more sensitive they are when stuff happens, the more trauma they experience. So sensi sensitivity, the word comes from the Latin word sincere, to feel. So the more sensitive you are, the more you feel. And the more you feel, the more pain there is. So the same sensitivity that leads to the creativity also creates more pain for people. So I think this is why there's such a conjunction of suffering and great art. I don't necessarily think that suffering is necessary for great art, but they often go along together because of the, because of the sensitivity of the artist. <laughs>